Again, just reading scripture helps recenter us on what life is truly all about. Uh, today we're going to be looking at Genesis 3, uh, verses 1 through 7, so you can go ahead and turn there. It should not take too long to arrive there, if you start at the beginning, I suppose. Um, I have a new appreciation for Blake. <laughs> um, um, coming to prepare a sermon, it it, it uh, rakes you over the coals, if you allow it, I guess. Um, it is hard to begin diving into a te- text without seeing yourself uh, there as well. And then realizing you have to preach on it, even though you are being led astray in the very ways that you are preaching that the Lord is calling us not to. Um, so it has been a very interesting week as I have been preparing for this. I also, one of the things that I would confess right at the beginning is um, uh, I was not a very good student in seminary. <laughs> um, in seminary, one of the things that they would always tell you, especially in preaching classes, develop a pocket sermon. Develop a sermon that you write out Fold it up and put it in your Bible just in case the pastor isn't there. You can pull it out. I said, uh, I'm not going to seminary to become a pastor. I'm going to become a teacher. I don't need that. <laughs> the Lord said, you are not wise, my son. <clears throat> so I have been learning a great deal this week as well. All right. Genesis 3, 1 through 7. I'll start with a little story, though, because stories are also fun. This is a true story of when I began teaching in high school. I was in a study hall one day, and uh, one of the students came up to me, and he came up to me sort of sheepishly and quietly and discreetly. He said, Mr. Hansen, I have something to show you. And when a student says that, you have no idea what they're going to show you. And so with fear and trepidation, I said, okay. And so he pulled me over the side and he lifted up his sleeve and it was a tattoo. Now, he hadn't had the tattoo before, so I knew it was a pretty recent thing. And it was a Japanese symbol. And um, not knowing Japanese and fairly certain that this student did not know Japanese, um, I was kind of curious what was going to follow from this discussion. He said, yes, I, I got a tattoo, and um, can you not tell my parents? <laughs> so, <clears throat> uh, as a teacher, I said, well, um, I'm sort of obligated to tell your parents, and they'll probably find out. It's on your skin. <laughs> I said, but just curious, what does it mean? Or what were you told that it means? <laughs> still remember him looking me confidently right in the face and saying, it means truth and honesty. (laughs) I remember celebrating the irony of the moment. I don't think he saw the irony of the moment. Uh, But it's amazing how a simple story like that, even though it's humorous, can teach valuable lessons. Uh, All the way through the Bible, God, of course, uses parables and and short stories to to teach us valuable lessons. 
you know, here in the very act of permanently declaring his virtues of truth and honesty on his skin, he was declaring the vices of deceit and dishonor with his heart and his mind. That simple story reveals that uh, virtues are never skin deep, as they say. We're going to be looking at another short story that is very familiar uh, to all of us. But the great aspect of the Bible is that short stories and simple stories um, are always infinite, as we prayed about this morning. It's a living text. You, You can never get to a point in the Bible and say, I've got that one. I know, I know what that is all about. I know sometimes children, they say, yeah, I've heard that already, that Bible story. I've got it. Um, but the beauty of the Bible is that it's, it's infinite. And if we really read it with a heart that is open, it's, it should never be dry and dusty. Certainly as we come to it, we may come to it in a dry and dusty manner. Um, but it is never dry and dusty. It's living. It's moving. And so we're going to take a look at this very familiar passage and, and see what it has to say to us. Again, I'm reading from the ESV, so it may be slightly different if you're reading from the NIV. Genesis 3, 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Again, a familiar passage, and I'm not going to today try to be novel with this passage to illuminate something for you that you have never seen before. Rather, I just ask for us to enter into the passage. It is easy to stand on the outside and look at Eve and her failures, but I challenge us to find ourselves in there as well. Even though this story is infamous for giving us the fall and our departure from God, I want to focus also on today how it reveals our return to God as well. So to set the stage, we need to look at at verse 1. Here we get introduced to the serpent. says the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. Some of your translations may have shrewd. Some, I believe, even have cunning. Uh, the reality is the Hebrew word there, which is a rum, um, doesn't necessarily carry the connotation of something evil. It really carries the connotation of being wise or skilled. 
Now, of course, we see in this passage he's wise or skilled in the area of deceit, um, but he is skilled. It's really actually a wordplay. If you look back in verse 25 of chapter 2, it ends with saying that the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The word for naked is aramim. So here you have aram being wise and aramim being naked. <clears throat> and so what we're going to look at today is how was the serpent wise in his deceit? What is it that he did? He had great skill. He doesn't come to her with petty pleasures and ugly allurements. He draws her by speaking to her head and her heart. What we're going to really focus on today is verse 6. All the way through, he is deceiving her and challenging her. But then it's in verse 6 that we see Eve takes it on her own. And it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, with her, and he ate. If you look at that passage, you see that there, there really is three things that were drawing Eve away from God. She saw the goodness of the fruit. She saw the beauty of the fruit. And she saw that the truth that the fruit had to offer her. Did you see that? In verse 6 again, So the woman saw that the tree was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise. Now, I imagine some of you are rightly thinking, if you're familiar with a classical mode of education and recognize that I'm a classical headmaster, then I might be committing eisegesis here. Eisegesis is reading into the text what you want to see, which is not a great way of going through the text. Of course, we want to be exegeting, which is reading what the text has, reading out of the text. I'll tell you, I struggled with that as I approached this text. This text I've come back to years and years and years because I just find it so full of what it has to offer us. I wrestled with it, but again, I can't help but see what led Eve away was what she saw as the goodness of the fruit, the beauty of the fruit, and the truth it had to offer her. So at this point, I would put it to you that all humans are created with a longing for goodness, beauty, and truth. It's amazing to think that Eve in the garden in this perfect state, was created with desires. That means that she was drawn somewhere, that God gave her desires. I think that's one of the points in Christianity we have to remember. Sometimes we think, oh, when we get to heaven, all our desires will be fulfilled, and therefore we won't have desire anymore. I hope this text illuminates God created Eve and Adam with desires. God-given desires that were, again, intended to be eternal. 
We cannot live, we cannot have one of these, goodness, beauty, and truth, without the others. It's like a three-legged stool. Doug Wilson, who's also involved in a, a classical movement, puts it this way. He says, to have goodness without beauty is moralism. You have goodness without beauty, that's just mere moralism. But to have truth without beauty is rationalism. All reason. Equally, beauty without truth lapses into romanticism. Of just being led by your feelings and what is beautiful before you. What we see here is Eve's desires. She's given these desires as a tether to tie her to God and to marvel at him for who he is and what he does for them. Seems like we just prayed about that. Unfortunately, it's those same desires, when they're not oriented to God, that sends her out of paradise. With that said, no one truly is desiring some abstract term. Some may think about such abstract terms of goodness, truth, and beauty, but rarely, if ever, do we say at the present moment, I'm deeply longing for beauty right now. Or my hands just feel empty without some goodness in them. We are too practical to be just talking about abstract terms. But the truth is our soul is crying out for them. Even if we're not conscious of it, our souls are longing for these. It longs for them and needs them to survive We experience these deep longings in us as the desires for fulfillment, the desires for unification, and the desires for dependence. Even though we don't say, I'm desiring goodness, there is something that we can recognize in us that is calling for fulfillment. Even though we don't say, I need beauty right now, there's something in us that is calling us to be unified with something outside of us. It's the same with truth. We don't say, I really want to depend on someone. But that's what truth is calling us to, is to great dependence. If those desires were not warped by sin, they would pull us like strong magnets right into the heart of God. But alas, as with Eve, we are lost. And the thriving God intended for us in the garden turns into a thrashing In the world we live in now. Eve's desires place her in front of the tree of temptation, asking three questions that should have already been answered in her mind. Three questions that all of us must answer. Three questions that have dire consequences on our lives. We'll unpack these as we work through, so don't be compelled to understand all the connections right now. The desire for fulfillment and goodness prompts Eve to ask in her mind, why am I here? Some of you might be asking that right now as you listen to the sermon. The beauty of the fruit and the desire for unification asks her, am I alone here? The allure of wisdom and the truth and the desire for dependence has asked, 
Eve asking what is real. We'll look at how Eve negotiates all these questions, but the overriding question I want you to think about and to wrestle with today is, how are you, how are we answering those questions? The reality is, Eve was the only one who, and Adam were the only ones that were born chained to the right answers. They were, they were created with the right answers already embedded in their hearts, and yet they still walked away from God. We enter in the world, we're already away from God. We're already chained to the wrong answers. How in the world are we to be coming back to God then? If she had it all, and he had it all, and they were already tethered to the right answer, and they drifted, and were tethered to the wrong answers, how are we to be back? If we fail to ask these questions of ourselves, we are going to be chained to the answers we don't want. So what we're going to look at first is goodness. That desire for fulfillment and how it gets warped. Let us look at Eve's wrestling with the idea of goodness. Now certainly, I could spend hours talking about the philosophical and theological definitions and natures of goodness. And many of you would applaud me and celebrate. Let's do that right now. I see your eyes growing bigger as I put that up. But no, I'll save you from daydreaming until later. But instead, we'll look at the immediate context to see what it has to say about goodness here. Again, I'm not going to spend the time, but if you're familiar with chapter one, you see the constant refrain over and over again as God creates. And God saw it and it was good. And he saw it was good. And he saw that it was very good over and over as he creates. God creates a space. He fills it and then he beholds it and then he declares it good. Over and over again through Genesis. I put to you over and over again through the whole Bible. He does that. Prepares room in your heart, fills it, declares it good as well. I want you to note just something that the third day brought forth trees that bear fruit. And what did God say about the trees that bear fruit? He said that they are good. They're good. To make it even more specific, look at chapter 2, verse 9. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Both those trees were producing fruit and they are already declared good. They're both producing good fruit. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is producing good fruit. Do you see that? Sometimes we slip into the idea that maybe in Genesis it's sort of like a fairy tale, fairy tale, and the fruit that that tree was producing was laced with poison. God would have had to declare that not good. But he doesn't. Is he declaring it not good? No. If you look <clears throat> at verse 5 in chapter 3, 
And the serpent is coming to Eve and saying, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The question is, what was the skill that the serpent was enacting in that temptation? What was the skill that he was arriving at? If you look closely, <clears throat> the serpent wasn't lying completely. He says in verse 5 that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. If you jump down to verse 7, it says they ate of it and their eyes were opened. What about the rest of it in verse 5? It says, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Did that happen? Well, if you look over in verse 22, we see that as well. Then the Lord God himself said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. So the serpent says, when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God and you'll know good and evil. Keep on reading in scripture, they eat it, their eyes are opened, they become like God, knowing good and evil. What was the serpent doing there? If Eve's natural desire to pursue the good is drawing her to the tree, and the tree was actually good for food, as evidenced in 2.9, and everything that the serpent promised regarding the tree happened, why was it not good for Eve to eat of the tree? I'm sure you are ahead of me at this point, but I just want to make sure, so I'll just give you the simple answer. God said so. God said it wasn't good. But what I want you to do is to enter into the mind of Eve. Picture yourself there. How did Eve go wrong? It's the same way we go wrong. One knows not how to live this life if we don't know what this life is for. Good and bad have to be defined in relation to purpose. A good hammer is only a good hammer if it hammers well. A good drill is only a good drill if it drills well. A good human is only a good human if he humans well. I'm glad you, you got that one. <laughs> it is clear that Eve did not human well here. She looked at a tree forbidden by God and labeled it as not good and decided to have an existential question at that moment. God says, not good. She stares at it and goes, let me consider Let me consider if you have labeled this correctly. She knew all the trees in the garden were created good, and the fruit it supplied was good. So why in the world would it be labeled not good? Many commentators in history have argued that Eve was led astray by some sort of deficiency in her emotional makeup. Again, with... uh, Some chauvinism, often claiming, well, she was the woman. 
It was her emotion that drew her away. She were thinking clearly she wouldn't have been drawn away. I'll put it to you that I'm convinced that she was led astray by logic. Chesterton, in his book, Orthodoxy, says, Imagination does not breed insanity. Imagination does not breed insanity. Exactly what does breed insanity is reason. The poet only asks to get his head into the heavens. It is the logician who seeks to get the heavens into his head. And it is at this point that his head splits. It was entirely reasonable for Eve to ask the question, why is the tree not good? The reality was that the tree was not was good for the purpose for which it was created. The tree was good for the purpose of which it was created. When God made the tree, he said it is good. The purpose was to teach faith. Faith is trusting. The purpose of the tree was to teach them faith. You trust me when I say that's not good, that it's not good. The fruit on it is good. It's beautiful to look at. But it's not good for you to go against my word. See, the sin wasn't some poison in the fruit. The sin was the poison in her heart. That's what drew her. And this is where the warping takes place. If she knew her purpose was to glorify God, she would have never sought fulfillment somewhere else. But Eve allowed her desire for fulfillment to warp into the desire of gratification. The difference between the two is slight but important. Gratification has a connotation of deservedness, an entitlement, if you will. Eve believed that since the fruit was good, and God was keeping that good fruit from her, he was not satisfying her purpose, which was to receive all good unto herself. Withholding a good in her framework was equivalent with evil. I know that's good. You're keeping me from the good, so that must be evil for you not to allow me to have that good. Perhaps that rings a bell with you. If it doesn't, consider. How could a good withheld possibly be a true good? Perhaps we we don't vocalize that framework ourselves, but certainly we live that same principle out. If a good is kept from us, perhaps we're not recognized at work for what we have done. Perhaps you have kept your purity... And you have been waiting for God to supply a spouse, but none has arrived. Perhaps you have faithfully walked with the Lord your whole life, but he continues to take your loved ones away. Your parents, your spouse, your children. I know for me, perhaps I come up with an idea and I tell it to someone. Then they go tell it to someone else and they get the credit for it. I go, how is that good? I came up with it. I should receive that good. 
That's what we are often saying is, how is that good? At some point, we all say, this doesn't make sense. Why would God keep that good from me? What I have right now is not good. The truth is, we have redefined good to be that which benefits me. At Miris, the students are reading The Once and Future King, which is a, a tale about King Arthur. And in it, he is a young boy, and he has another boy with him named Kay. And they get an eccentric tutor called Merlin. Merlin can do magic. And Merlin comes in, and he favors Arthur. And he begins changing him into different animals, a fish and a hawk, to teach him lessons. And at some point, Kay goes, that's not fair. Why is he changing you into all of this and I don't get any of it? And so Arthur agrees. He goes, I don't really know. It doesn't rationally make sense why he would be doing that. And so he comes to Merlin and says, that doesn't seem fair. Why are you favoring me? And Merlin says, Perhaps what is good for you might be bad for him. Perhaps what is good for you, Arthur, is bad for him. Now, again, that might sound relativistic, but I want to challenge you that I think Merlin is being very wise here. When we cry out that we see a good that we cannot have and therefore it must not be good, we're failing to acknowledge that God is supremely wise. Why was he keeping Adam and Eve from that tree? Because he cared more about their trust in him than giving them one more tree out of a million trees in the forest. He wanted them to grow, to accept that that good was kept from them for a better good, for the growth in faith. So here's a litmus test for us. How is it for you to be forgotten. Do you ever get upset if you are forgotten for something? Perhaps someone forgets to pick you up or forgets to thank you or forgets to invite you or forgets that you were in on a certain conversation. How do you react on the inside? As you're waiting for them to pick you up and you realize they're not coming. Do you get angry? Do you get upset? Do you get saddened? Are you dejected? We're quick to say all these are not good situations. If we pursue, if the purpose of our life is truly to reflect God and not ourselves, why are we upset if we are forgotten? If the true purpose of our lives is to glorify God, why do we get upset when we are forgotten? It's because we say it is evil to do me harm. It's evil to fail to praise me. It's evil and therefore not good when my desires are not being met. The truth is, the good does benefit us, but we are often not wise enough to see it. We needed an object lesson to truly understand it, and that's where Jesus came in. In Matthew, he challenged us. He's saying, not only not getting what you think you deserve, but what about this? What if blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account? 
Blessed are you in that situation. That is good. Not only are you not getting a good, but you're actually getting evil for my sake. That's good. But of course, he pushes it further. And he says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The good is for me to die for you. That's strikingly different than Eve standing and saying, why can't I have that fruit? That must be evil to keep me from that. Jesus is saying, look at me. I'm going to define good for you so you can have a real clear picture of it. I'm going to absorb all the evil so that you can experience goodness. Eve's led astray by her definition of good. Her desire was there to tether her to God, but it gets warped and pulls her away. It's the same with her desire for beauty. Again, if you look, if you're still in chapter 3, verse 5, I mean, sorry, verse 6, she saw that it was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. And that it was a delight to the eyes. Certainly truth and goodness make sense in the realm of Christianity, but where does beauty fit in? It is clear, even from a cursory reading of Scripture, that God is interested in beauty. Francis Schaeffer looked at the description of the temple and said, The temple was covered with precious stones for beauty. There was no pragmatic reason for these precious stones. They had no utilitarian purpose. God simply wanted beauty in the temple. God is interested in beauty. Beauty has a place in the worship of God. So think about that. Eve is standing in the very presence of God in the garden. The most beautiful being in all of existence. And her eyes are drawn away to a fruit. And it's that beauty that she pursues. It's a delight for the eyes. I'm going to pursue that rather than stay with this magnificent beauty here. And the thing about beauty is it draws you out of yourself. It draws you to whatever it is you are beholding. If you're standing on the top of a mountain looking out, you want to enter into that scene. If you're, if you're standing before an amazing painting, you want to enter into it. If you're reading some amazing piece of literature that is beautifully written, you lose yourself into it. You become unified with it. C.S. Lewis really says it the best, as he often does. And he says, we do not merely, we don't want merely to see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which hardly can be put into words. To be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. To be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it unto ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. That is the beauty that God put in all of our hearts, that desire to see something on the outside and want to be drawn into it. But we see Eve's desire gets warped. She doesn't just stand and behold the beauty and go, wow, that's amazing. She actually goes to the point of wanting to possess it. That's how that desire gets warped. It gets warped into possession and control. 
I want to be unified with something, but at some point it gets warped and you want to possess it. It's no small thing that the first sin of the Bible is a sin of consumption. She goes and wants that beauty inside. She takes it. That's the verb that it gives in there. She takes it and puts it inside. And guess what? It didn't fulfill. It wasn't the unification she was seeking. All it did was divide her. The first thing that they encounter after their eyes are opened, thinking that they're going to see that much more beauty in the world around them, they actually now see ugliness. They hide themselves. They cover themselves. I'd put it to you, even when they cover themselves and they're hiding from God, perhaps they were not even hiding together. The scripture doesn't make it clear where they are. But immediately they see ugliness. So as the clothing comes off their eyes, the clothing goes on their bodies. Contrast that to what it was supposed to be. The desire for beauty was supposed to draw them into God. Look at how Jesus picks that up strikingly in John. John 6, it says, So Jesus said to them, and this is when lots of people leave Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, blood, you have no life in me. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood abides in me. Jesus reverses the whole curse with his death on the cross. They were trying to consume, to find that beauty. It entered into their bloodstream and it separated them from God. Here he says, eat me. That's what you should be doing. Pour yourself into me. Not only that, let me pour it into you. That's the beauty we were intended for. And with that, our eyes truly become open to see the beauty all around us. The beauty of the snow, the beauty of this area. It points back to God, not for possession, but for unification, drawing us to him. That leaves us with the last one, which is truth and what is real. So when she saw that the tree was good for food and it was delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit and ate ate it. It's fundamental to who we are that we seek truth. All you have to do is think of, again, where your anger comes in. If you are deceived, anger rises to the forefront. Our hearts melt when a love is falsified. Our lives drift when all appears a chaotic sea. Blaise Pascal said, nothing gives rest but the sincere search for truth. Nothing gives rest but the sincere search for truth. Eve's desire for truth and the application of that truth and wisdom caused her to pause at the serpent's salty words. If Eve were to have truly followed her desire for truth, it would have led her to a completely dependency on God. Truth is a standard. Truth makes you dependent. I can't 
say that this is four feet tall unless I have a standard in which to reference. I depend on it. She had God. Why didn't she just go to God after the serpent said, you won't surely die and go, is that true, God? Is that true what he just said? She didn't because she wanted the shortest route possible to truth. She saw that the tree and was told the tree was the knowledge of good and evil. If she had to turn to God and say, I don't know what is true, she would have to be humble. This route, she would do it on her own. Her path to glory seemed short and secure to truth. Contrast that with Jesus. He was tempted three times by, the, by Satan, right? Satan said, here's the shortest route to the glory you are seeking. Follow me here. Worship me. I'll give you everything. Here's the shortest route. Can't you see? I'll give you all the nations of the world. Jesus already knew his path was a long, arduous, painful path. But he trusted God in it to realize that the glory would come through the suffering. Eve didn't want that. And guess what? We don't want that either. Our desire for dependency gets warped into the desire for independence. We don't want to lean on God in every area of our lives. We want to trust. We want to say, I've got this. God, thank you for saving me, and now I'm on my own. Dependency is humility and vulnerability and weakness and going before others. As we talked in Sunday school, it's going to others and saying, speak into my life. So as we look at this and we look at Eve, I hope you saw yourself in there as I did as well. These great God-given desires of, of goodness, beauty, and truth, which should tether us to the Lord, easily get warped and pull us so far away from it. But the path back has already been made by Christ. He says, come, find goodness in me. Eat me. Bathe in me, if you will. Press into me. I am the standard for everything. Trust me. That's what we're being called to do over and over again. And I'll leave you with a quote from... Reinhold Niebuhr, who says, Nothing which is true or beautiful or good makes complete sense in any immediate context in history. Nothing which is true or beautiful or good makes complete sense in any immediate context in history. Therefore, we must be saved by faith. We must be saved by trusting God, even if we don't see. Please pray with me. Dear God, we thank you for your scripture. And we know it is infinitely deep and we just scratch the surface and we, we understand that you have created us to pursue hard after you. And Lord, we pray that you would do that today. In Jesus' name, amen.